You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Alexis, codenamed Doc Holiday Jackson. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. It's the top of the week, which means it's time for some strange news. Uh, we've, we've got a lot, got a lot going on uh, today. Uh, we sometimes will hop on our group thread and say, you know, like kick ideas back and forth. And one uh, one beautiful thing that happened behind the behind the curtain today is uh, leading up to today's episode, we were kicking around ideas that we were all kind of on the same page about. Uh, Where do you where do you guys want to go first? Do you want to go to do you want to go to China? Do you want to go to uh, Myanmar, formerly Burma? Do you want to go to Russia? We're we're going to all of these places, by the way, folks. So I I hope at least one of those sounded exciting to you in the audience. I feel like Myanmar might be the the top story. Sure, absolutely. Now I bring this story to the table today 
knowing some things, but not many things. And I will be leaning on you folk to you gents just to help me get through some of this. Just putting that out there as a disclaimer. Uh, before we jump in, I am using a timeline, a chronology of events in the history of Myanmar and Burma. Um, it is on bbc.com. The title, if you're looking for it, is Myanmar Profile Dash Timeline. It's just got everything going back all the way to 1057 CE. BBC is great for those, by the way. They have one mm -hmm. for pretty much every country. Exactly. If you ever just want to get a basic idea of important things that have happened, check it out. Turns out Brits are very organized and good at chronology. <laughs> well, they're a little biased. Uh, but, uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah the, um, also, uh, if you're looking for a, a little bit of vicarious travel and you want to learn more, uh, I think we've recommended this on the air before. Check out Wiki Travel articles. Take them mm -hmm. with a wheelbarrow of salt, but do check them out. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and for the purposes of this story, there's a second timeline for more recent events that is very helpful to look at. If you wanted to follow along or, or think about what's occurring here, just get some more, some more info for yourself. It's on Al Jazeera. It's called Myanmar Timeline of a Fragile Democracy. I believe it starts in 1947. Yeah. So that'll be helpful. Just keep those things in mind. All right. I'm actually going to a very different news source, something very much U.S.-based, uh, CBS News, for the article that kind of brought me into the conversation and down the rabbit hole. It is titled, European Leaders Condemn Coup as Myanmar's Military Seizes Power, Detains Aung San Suu Kyi. Now, th this kind of just popped up in my news feed and started learning about it. Let's talk about what's happening. Um, ben, I would just say again at the top here, this feels like an episode, like very much mm -hmm. worth our time. Mm -hmm. So we may not hit everything right now, but we'll give you the lay of the land. Something very interesting happened in Myanmar, again, formerly Burma, as Ben mentioned there. It, uh, oh, wow, I, I got rid of my map. But you can check out Myanmar, the country, it is in Asia, it is to the east of India, and to the west of Thailand. Uh, you can think about it being over there. It's got a very interesting history over the years. The most important thing for you to know in this context is that for, for a number of years, up until 2011, I believe, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, it was controlled by essentially a military junta. Uh, the military was largely in control of what happened in the country and functioned as a government. And then some things changed in 2011 where the military kind of took a step back and some elections uh, were held. And then the trajectory of the country felt like it was moving towards democracy, if not uh, fully taking up democracy as its new way forward. And then after a, a large series of events in 2015, in November of that year, uh, this, this party called the Opposition National League for Democracy, uh, they, which is led by Aung San Suu Kyi, which is the person that was detained very recently, so what a lot of the hubbub is about, um, she was actually able, well, she and her party were able to get enough parliamentary seats 
in order to form a government, which is a big deal. It, it's very, demo, Ben, we can talk about this maybe just for a moment. Democracies in a lot of countries function very differently than here in the United States right. with our two-party system, where essentially whoever wins the presidency kind of controls that house over here. And then whoever, you know, it, within the house and Congress, each seat is individually elected rather mm -hmm. than you know, one person or one majority wins a certain number of votes and then they get to form their own group in parliament. Right. Yeah. We're looking in in many democracies outside of the United States. What we're looking at is the formation of coalitions. So say mm -hmm. you have a party, say you have like a Green Party and then you have um I don't know, mad lib the words however you want, the conservative socialist party or the democratic libertarian party or whatever, and they can't all quite get a majority rule, so they Voltron up together and do their best to create a coherent platform based on the goals that each of those groups prioritizes. So it can get messy and make for strange bedfellows at times, uh, but it is it does tend to be better for the average citizen in those countries because they are more likely to have at least some of their values represented in government versus, you know, um, look how ridiculously difficult it is by design to start a viable third party in the U.S. with any chance of winning significant positions in office. Hmm. Such a good point, Ben. So, so we're talking about this occurring in 2015. Things are infinitely complicated uh, up until this year, 2021, in this month, February. Um, in, in November, I believe, of last year, there were elections. I want to say that's true. Uh, yeah, I believe there were elections in November and, and there, was, there appeared to be a landslide victory for that same party Unsung Suu Kyi was leading. And the army itself took, uh, kind, of, kind of mirrors what was happening in the United States here with our elections. The army just said, there is, this is not right. The, there has been voter manipulation. There has been, someone has messed with these numbers. This, is, this election is a fraud. And the army itself, there's a chief, uh, Min Ong Hleng. He he took power. Uh, essentially, the military took power in the country in a full-on coup, and that is what's happening right now. They ended up detaining many members of that party that won the election and others who essentially oppose uh, the military rule. Uh, I'm going to jump back to that CBS article to actually read some of this to you. It's weird the way it with the way it happened. On television there in Myanmar there is a military run network. And on this network someone one of the one of the anchors I assume or someone who is regularly appearing came on and just announced that the military has taken control of the country and it will be in control for 1 year. And it's just kind of all happened at once. People were detained and then the announcement came through and all of a sudden, life in Myanmar as just a regular citizen has is changed. Mm -hmm. um, everything got flipped, turned upside down, <laughs> as they say. Worth it. Uh, sorry, sorry. Worth um, it. I, you know, and of course, on the Western side in the United States and in many parts of Europe, uh, 
everyone is coming out of the woodwork and saying, this is terrible, this is awful. I mean, obviously it is, right? Anytime a democratic election is overthrown by the might, essentially, of a military power within that government, it's probably not a good thing, mm-hmm. in the long run, at least. It's kind of a hard hard thing to put a value judgment on, but generally when, when a strong arm comes through and just forces action, it's less good than if the people decide something. Yeah, so, so just to, to clarify, essentially a military junta is, it's like a coup from within. I mean, it's, it's like a... Uh a strong man, military official usurping the power of elected officials or of whomever is supposedly in charge and then wielding his influence over the military and using that to, you know, cause a sea change in government. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty controversial because a military, uh, military intervention of this sort has has often been portrayed as a good thing in other mm-hmm. cases across the world and over time, uh, like interfering to prevent the rise of extremism or fascism. These sure. things are can be considered uh, part of a military's constitutional duty, you know, enemies abroad, domestic and abroad. Uh, but in this case, there is a big, big red badger just over the horizon that has a that has a lot of influence in Myanmar and Matt. I think we'll get to that in a, in a second. Well, right? yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's exactly what you're talking about. The constitution of Myanmar was formed jointly with the military, um, and there is a at least according to the television station that is owned by the military. When they announced this, they said that there was a there's a section of the constitution. That allows the military to take over in a time of national emergency. Mm-hmm. So essentially, an emergency was declared for the length of one year. Mm-hmm. And the moment it was declared, the military is now in power, at least according uh, to the people who are causing this coup. Um, and they will stay in power for one year. Um, and they specifically said the takeover was in part due to this is uh, this is what I'm getting from CBS News. The government's failure to act on the military's claims, now that's important, the military's claims of voter fraud in the November election. Right. And it's, it's failure to postpone the, the election because of the coronavirus crisis. Well, they demanded, they demanded a recount, uh, which was not granted because from what I understand, the country's election commission uh, did not see evidence of fraud. Uh, but... Yeah, but if you look at the military's perspectives from their public statements, they say they're doing this as a legal, proactive, and preventative move to maintain stability, which is an odd thing to say with a straight face, given that these events forced all the banks to close, shops are running out of food, communication infrastructure is kaput. These, those three things alone are, surprise, not the hallmarks of a stable government. Yeah, the, it's a serious issue, and it's panic that comes from this kind of action, right? You and uncertainty about what's to come. So, you know, every everyday people like you listening, and and me, and everybody on this Zoom call, if something like this starts going down, one of the first things you try and do is prepare yourself and your family with whatever essentials you need, with maybe cash. If you can like get as much cash out as you can, just in case you have to make moves, um, 
and, you, and the banks stop working all of a sudden at some point. Uh, that's yeah, that kind of panic is is happening right now and will probably continue for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine the fear that's generated in a moment like this. One important point to make here is that, like, what? Yes, this is this can be considered a coup, but how much of a change is it? Because the military dictatorship went out of power ostensibly in 2010, but not really. Not really if you look at it, because it was able to force a compromise with the new government where it was granted 25% of the seats in parliament. And so if you asked the average person familiar with the situation, the, the real the real secret, not a secret here, is that the military and the junta could close its hands around the neck of the government anytime it wanted to. They just didn't for a while until, you know, this week. Jeez. Oh, they also had a veto over any constitutional changes. Wow. I, did, I didn't even realize that. There's so much to be learned here. And I'm just going to say one more time, this is worth us looking at for a full episode, really giving you a good background on Myanmar and what's been happening there, and then all the details, because we're going to be learning a lot more over the course of this week uh, of what's going down. Uh, A couple more things we can tell you here uh, before we wrap this section. That same military TV network stated that the generals in charge of the country now, because remember, immediately they become in charge of the country, had removed a total of 24 government ministers and deputy ministers and replaced them with 11 hand-picked replacements. So they just picked out their own people and put them in power there. They also mentioned that the new commander-in-chief would be a person, or this this person that took over that I already mentioned, General Min Ong Klang. H-L-A-I-N-G, would be in charge, but there's a sitting vice president, Mint Sway, M-Y-I-N-T-S-W-E, would be elevated to acting president. Um, And this person is also a general who is apparently, at least according to CBS News, and I, I I don't know the full story here yet, but is best known for a crackdown on Buddhist monks, and that occurred in 2007. And this person was and is a close ally of former junta leader uh, Thon Sui, S-H-W-E. Oh, can I put in two points? Uh, Please. First, Su Chi is also, has also come under fire for uh, persecution of the Rohingya Muslims. Uh, yes. You may have heard that headline in the news in past years. Uh, and one crazy thing that I hope that we'll explore for sure in the full episode is I am wondering, not without basis, you guys, I am wondering uh, whether this newest coup was in part uh, motivated by astrology. What are we talking about? Don't ruin it for yourself. Don't search yet. Don't search yet. We'll make it worth your while. (laughs) Astrology. All of this uh, makes me think of, you know, the idea of, oh, this would never happen in the United States. Um, But Ben, you mentioned the kind of potential positive version of this where a military coup could overtake, you know, uh, a power grab by an overreaching 
president or or or, or whatever government, right? Um, and it seems like you know we got to a place pretty recently that, that that borderline approached that. But it also makes me think of the plot of the fantastic Stanley Kubrick movie uh, Doctor Strangelove, wherein a lone rogue high level military general uh, essentially hijacks the entire military and orders a an attack on the USSR that will ultimately result in uh, mutual destruction. Um, and there are certain safeguards in place that he uses that prevent any intervention in this. Uh, if anyone hasn't seen that, I think that's a, a really great, mm-hmm. uh, you know, satirical example of what can happen when one person has too much power. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I, I wanted <laughs> just remind everybody, imagine the scenario. Imagine you are wherever you are. Um, Maybe in Kansas somewhere, maybe in the middle of Los Angeles, wherever you are listening to this. Imagine that all of a sudden you go to turn on the television and none of the stations are coming in for some reason. You you can't get access to, you know, Verizon or whatever it is, you, you know, AT&T, nothing's just, no signal is coming through. So you try to log in, but for some reason your Wi-Fi can't connect out to the internet. and you don't understand what's going on. You try and make a phone call to a relative or some a friend that lives nearby, but the phone isn't making connections to anybody else. Just just imagine that that begins occurring, um, and imagine living through that and how. I know I would be in a state of serious panic if that were occurring, totally. and I would be hunkered down immediately. <laughs> um, that happened to many, many, many people. When this when this mm-hmm. went down, dude, people freaked out at the season finale of The Sopranos when their TV went black for a split second. They're like, "What happened?" Like the world collectively kind of lost their minds, thinking that like the cable had all gone out at the same time or something. I mean, absolutely, dude. If if I felt like all of a sudden communication was cut off from more than one source, I would absolutely be panicking. Pro tip: If you can, you have the ability to do so. Highly recommend keeping a landline phone. They're antiquated. Uh, they're not super useful the way that mobile phones are, but they have one important advantage that a lot of people are not aware of. If you have a corded phone, a landline phone, it'll work during a power outage. It's because, because the, the same thing that allows voice to carry also powers the phone. So keep one. If you're feeling especially paranoid or you think that your ability to communicate might be compromised, is a coup ever a good thing? It's a good question, at least. Uh, Typically, the way these are supposed to occur, if it's in a good case, is that the military intervenes for a limited window of time. And during that window of time, they facilitate free and fair elections, and then they transfer back to a civilian government. They're just supposed to come in and cameo. They're not supposed to rule for, you know, 54 years or something. So that's that's part of why there's that limited time frame of one year. But will that result in a free and fair election? I don't know, because the civilians in the military don't seem to agree on what constitutes a real election. Exactly. All right, so we'll... We will keep looking out for updates on this and hopefully come back with more info very soon. For now, we're going to take a quick break, hear some sponsors, and then we'll be right back. 
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Snag a Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? time for you to start paying some bills i'm jb smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast straightforward inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a giggillionaire available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit att.com slash hypergig for details i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico now i'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it join me monday to friday to find out what's happening why and what it all means follow the global story from the bbc wherever you listen to podcasts And we've returned. I want to thank everybody who's reached out to me on Instagram or on Twitter or has reached out to us on the Facebook group page. Here's where it gets crazy. Uh, There is an awesome story that just came out solving a very old mystery. Uh, This is going to be familiar to any of our longtime listeners and fellow conspiracy realists. Folks, Dyatlov Pass, this is a tale that is um, core conspiracy lore. You know, I I love the classic stuff they don't want you to know vibe about this. Uh, it's, It's a hell of a story. I'll give you a breakdown of the story itself, quick and dirty, and then we can explore the problems with that story and we can explore the news. So, Ben. Before you get into this, you're saying Tialov Pass is solved. Uh, maybe. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. There's still maybe some mystery. All right, let's keep going. 
So the Datlov Pass incident refers to a series of events that occurred in February 1959, exactly 62 years to the day as we record today's strange news. So back in February 1959 in the northern Ural Mountains, nine Russian hikers died somehow during the night while they were camping in a site they had cut from the snow slope of the mountains, uh, something happened. No one was sure what, uh, but whatever happened was fatal. And there were puzzling things at the crime scene. Uh, first, several uh, several folks were inadequately dressed. It seemed they had thrown off their clothes. One hiker's tongue was missing. Uh, also, there was a lot of physical trauma and then later rumors would muddy the story. But we know that the Soviet authorities who investigated this uh, determined that six had died from hypothermia, three had been killed by physical trauma, and there's a phrase they used, which was an unknown overwhelming force, depending on how you translate it. This was seen immediately as a cover-up. And very soon, because remember, the story circulated before the rise of civilian internet. So very soon, new stuff got added to the mix. You'll hear allegations that there were high radiation levels. Uh, you'll hear allegations that people were even glowing or that there was unidentified aerial phenomena in the sky in the, uh, in the days leading up to this incident. The problem with this for skeptics and true believers and conspiracy realists alike is that one, this occurred under the purview of a notoriously secretive government. Uh, two, a lot of time passed before this story really got its uh, like due diligence research-wise outside of the USSR. And then the next part is, and the skeptics hated this, is that there wasn't really solid proof that a mundane event could explain this. So you could say, you could say it was just hypothermia all you want. But then someone who believes something different could say, well, hypothermia doesn't tear people's tongues out or hypothermia doesn't crack your skull or give you incredible chest trauma. Uh, that's these are just the facts. Um, well, and, and it was it was not consistent uh, injury to all of them. It wasn't like the same thing. I mean, there were there were variations. Right. And it seemed like some intervening force was at play. Right. Mm -hmm. Amidst the various individual victims. So the mystery stands and it does so much, so much for. Uh, shows like stuff they don't want you to know. Matt and I were in the trenches on Datlov for a long time. And interestingly enough, it's one of those stories, since it never had an explanation that was solid, it's one of those stories that we still get emails about. People still reach out to me on social about this and have for a number of years. We just pointed them to our video on this. And I think uh, several years ago, we also did an audio podcast uh, on, on these events. So one thing I noticed is that the frequency of people asking about this began to increase over 2020. You'll see trends like this come and go depending on any number of factors. But for everyone who wrote in about this, especially if you wrote in 2019, 2020, 
congratulations, you're plugged in. You're oddly prescient, my friends, because a new study released claims to have solved this enduring mystery. Very recently, a study published in Communications, Earth, and Environment walked through several computer models to, in their opinion, uh, maybe not conclusively prove, but strongly suggest that we know the murderer of those nine hikers. In a weird way, it might have been a self-inflicted disaster, a kind of avalanche, not the kind you're picturing, folks, not the kind from films about avalanches, not the not the kind of thing uh, triggered by Saruman in Lord of the Rings when they're when you know the thing that drives them back to the mines of Moria. Instead, this is something called a slab avalanche. Um, not to sound dismissive or glib, but I feel like they missed an opportunity to call it a slabalanche, which is just, it was right there. Uh, here's what happened. The reason that we say this doesn't really compare to the avalanches of film and fiction is because typically those avalanches appear to happen as an instant A to B if then reaction. But the truth is, these actual avalanches, the ones that they're describing in the study, which we'll get into in a second, uh, they have kind of a timer on them. An avalanche can happen minutes after the event that creates it, or it can happen hours and hours later. And this snowslide, this uh, slabalanche, according to the authors of this study, could account for a lot of the missing pieces of information, the bedeviled skeptics and conspiracy realists alike, uh, for for decades, for, again, 62 years. Comes to us from Johan Guam, who is the head of the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory, and Alexander Puzrin, who is the chair of geotechnical engineering at ETH Zurich. They dug deep. Guys, they poured over as much declassified Soviet research on this as they could. And then they took the latest avalanche research and uh, simulations and tried to plug in this data, trying to essentially recreate the crime scene on a computer. Now, I want to pause here. When we have talked about Datlov in the past, uh, what, what did you guys think? I didn't think it was just an avalanche. I thought it was some kind of like murder situation or some kind of ritualistic something. When you hear about smashed skulls and missing tongues, my brain immediately goes to psychopath on the loose. It was it was always uh, cryptid for me, Yeti, uh, mm-hmm. or some some type of large creature mm-hmm. that was causing mayhem. I was into the idea of a secret technology myself. You know, I thought. I thought that would work with the Cold War era experimentation that was so frequent back in the day. Uh, By the way, that doesn't mean that's what we actually think happened. That's just kind of our, well, what, how did you call it? Our pet theory, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here are some of the missing pieces that the authors of the study were bothered by. First, this is your grisly fact for today, folks. First, most people in avalanches, if they die, they don't die due to broken bones or brain trauma or anything like that. They die by asphyxiation. 
they're buried alive. It's a very unclean way to go. And this is where challengers to the avalanche theory really butter their bread. Uh, because if you look at the slope and the incline of where the hikers chose to camp, it doesn't look like a hill. It doesn't look like very avalanche-friendly territory. You know what I mean? It's a slope, but it's not like a, a harsh mountain face in the steep incline. Uh, and they, it's quite likely that the hikers, who knew what they were doing, purposely selected this site because it looked like there's, it's not avalanche territory. But when they started camping, according to the authors here, what they did is they cut into the snow, into the, uh, into the slope, the same way that you might see like a ranch-style home built into a hill on the, in the suburbs, mm-hmm. you know, split level. Or a hobbit and, hole built into the side of a, of a hill. Sure. And uh, the thing that happened was that they triggered an avalanche, and the avalanche took several hours to get to them. Uh, several hours to reach kind of a critical mass and and ensue. You don't think they would have noticed that or it would have awakened them, the vibrations even off farther in the distance? No. Uh, well, maybe, but not not giving them enough time to run away because uh, they would have, when it happened, it happened very quickly. And the tensions leading up to it, according to this idea, would not have been super easy to discern if you're just a a human hiking with the technology they had. So a slab avalanche occurs when there's a dense slab of snow that's sitting over a snow layer that's weaker. So it's already kind of heavy and um, haphazard. And when there's some sort of trigger that compromises that weaker snow, or, you know, pushes harder on that, that strong slab, then it eventually tips over, it falls, it creates a snow slide. And this can occur on slopes with a, an angle of uh, fewer than 30 degrees. So something that doesn't look like avalanche territory again. And the other thing is, another question, avalanches are big, right? Why didn't somebody else notice this? And Soviet authorities are well acquainted with avalanches. Russia is a snow-filled country. This avalanche could have been comparatively small. And if it were small enough, rescuers wouldn't see signs of an avalanche later. Uh, But even the smallest of these slab avalanches can weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Meaning that if you were, depending on where you're standing when it hit, you could have your bones broken, you could have your skull cracked, you could have your ribs crushed. So this is, uh, this is where they're at. And they did various simulations, not just of how this would occur, but of how people would be injured, like in this scenario. Well, and the other thing, Ben, is, is we know that some people, some of the group did die there. They perished in the tent or right near the tent. But then there were others who died further away. The, is there anything discussing what may have happened to them? Great question, Matt. Um, And it's something that I'm glad to say the authors are aware of because they still, they don't claim with certitude that this is the silver bullet solution. Instead, they say in a documentary about this paper that was just released, uh, they say 
Personally, we do not believe that the mystery can ever be solved because no one survived to tell the story. What we did in our paper is to show the plausibility of the avalanche hypothesis based on solid physical and experimental evidence. In a way, Matt, um, I guess you could call this a a kind of non-living cryptid because it's such an unusual kind of avalanche. You know what I mean? It hasn't. It took our species 62 years to think oh, yeah. about this. And, and just really quickly, like, I mean, when you're talking about the way it moves, you know, you think of an avalanche as being like powdery snow and people would typically die from asphyxiation. This is literally huge, rigid pieces that coming down this uh, the side of the mountain where they're camped could have hit them on the edge, coming down like almost like a giant slab of marble and then knocked you know, their skulls open or literally, you know, could have caught someone by the jaw and, and, and ripped their tongue out. Is that the conjecture here? Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. I mean, at that point, we're still talking about um, various likelihoods with no with no solid proof, right? So we have to remember it also took the original rescuers several months to recover the bodies of all nine hikers. They were definitely on a manhunt. I would like to shout out uh, Vice and uh, Smithsonian Mag for some excellent reporting on this. Uh, as well as the St. Petersburg Times. Uh, Here's the thing about missing organs, and this is kind of gross and explicit, but I think a lot of of folks who have spent time in the wild are familiar with this. Uh, Scavengers go for the soft stuff first. Those are the delicacies, the eyeballs, the tongue, the, uh, you know, your unmentionables. Uh, those, Those things are easy for creatures to access, and uh, they're a lot less work than, say, trying to uh, gnaw at bone marrow, things like that, right? You have to be a scavenger specifically adapted to that sort of diet. So it's completely plausible that one of the victims, such as uh, Ludmilla Dubinina, was missing both her eyeballs and her tongue because something happened along after the avalanche occurred and after she expired, and then it ate the eyes and the tongue and continued upon its way. Yeah. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Ben, just pause at this. What I'm imagining is this avalanche occurs at the side of the tent where they dug out from the side, right? Causing that avalanche to, to the slab to slide on top of one of the other layers. The heavy stuff kills some people almost immediately or at least gravely injures them. Then maybe people who survived that initial sliding slab gather each other up who are able to walk and try to get the heck out of there and then maybe freeze. And yeah, that's exactly. what, that's how they expire. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The idea is that uh, they were sleeping. The slab struck uh, the, they, those who could ran searching for shelter at a, at a ridge nearby, uh. but, to get a sense of the weather conditions, they couldn't see much further than maybe 50 feet in front of them themselves. And so they froze to death as they were trying to find shelter. And then as they were trying to make their way back to the tent, perhaps. And again, the Soviet government's lack of transparency, uh, the official findings, lack of scientific details made for a perfect storm of conspiracy. 
And, you know, in 2019, oddly enough, the, the current Russian government had announced plans to reinvestigate this incident. So a reframing of this is um, was in the cards for a while. They They opened a new investigation. And part of it, I think, is just to recognize the importance. I mean, closure for the families uh, and relatives of those who passed away and hopefully taking lessons learned so that we understand situations like these when they occur in the future again, which is, again, just a, it's a statistical certainty that mm-hmm. something like this would occur again. But it has critics. That's the other thing. The slabalanche has uh, has some folks poking holes in it already. Here are here are some of the objections. One, the lack of physical traces of an avalanche found by rescuers. We mentioned that it would have to be a pretty small avalanche, comparatively speaking, to not leave behind a ton of evidence. Uh, secondly, and I think this is a little more valid, uh, the gap. We mentioned these can occur minutes after the snow is compromised or hours. But when we're looking at this slabalanche as an explanation here, we have to remember there was a nine-hour gap between the hikers building their camp, cutting into the mountain to form a barrier against the wind, and then the snow hitting the fan. Managed to keep it a family show. Jeez, dude. <laughs> and, and then they also talk about the, the shallow slope of the campsite and, of course, the traumatic injuries. So it's not, it's not conclusive yet, but the investigators are, one of the investigators, at least, Puzrin, is certain that if the group had not cut into the slope, nothing would have happened. But when they cut into the slope, they created a crack and it propagated, it expanded over time. If you have ever been unfortunate enough to crack your smartphone, you are well aware of how this process works. That crack will slowly expand and branch off. If you have... Windshield. Windshield was my next example. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Boy, a windshield crack is one of the most like existentially depressing problems to have because you see it every day wherever you're driving. Just, yeah, just (laughs) taking a little, little, little bit closer. You know, it makes you Mm -hmm. think about mortality, the seventh seal, all the, all the, all the hits. Um, How much you need that extra $150 to get it replaced, but you just can't seem to find it. I feel like you and I were going through that the same period, man, uh, in the discovery days. Uh, there is a, there is a fun light note here that I thought was enjoyable, and we can end on this. The researchers credit a surprising source for helping them unravel this puzzle. You're not gonna, you're probably not gonna be able to guess what it is. Uh, so we'll just tell you, folks, it is frozen. That's right. The Disney film from 2013, Frozen, Let It Go, the whole nine. Uh, According to some reporting from National Geographic, one of the authors of the study was watching Frozen. And remember, this this is an avalanche expert. He was watching Frozen, and he was thinking, wow, I am so impressed by how good they are depicting snow. In fact, I am so impressed because I am an avalanche specialist, I'm going to reach out to the people who made Frozen 
And I'm going to ask them for the code they use to animate snow because it's amazing. They should be working for me. Why are you in Hollywood? It's about more than the money, you guys. I'm editorializing, mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. a bit. Yeah. But, but he reached out and they gave him the code. And then they used that along with grisly research on cadavers conducted by GM, General Motors, back in the 1970s. Uh, I have there's a pretty creepy car stuff episode about this too. It's a true story. Uh, once upon a time, General Motors used uh, real dead bodies instead of crash test dummies. Did you know that? Did we ever talk about that? Yeah, we 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 did talk about that. Um, <laughs> maybe not on the air, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was just one of those moments where in the office one of us looked over at the other one uh, from the computer. And then, like, cursed softly under their breath. And then we lost two hours from yeah. whatever we were supposed to be doing. Uh, so, was that, you know, when we had that conversation, it was the first time I ever imagined a haunting of a vehicle. And, you really? know, yeah, I don't know if you remember this. There was the concept of ghost ships has always been around, but I'd never thought about a ship like on the sea in on the its interior being haunted until that terrible terrible horror movie came out called ghost ship or whatever it was I called remember that yeah <laughs> but that one happened but then we had this conversation about crash test dummies being cadavers and i imagined just like a camry getting haunted over the years uh with an actual apparition uh, like attached to the physical place i think people would pay extra for it i think it i don't know advertised as a feature <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a real hazard if you're on the highway. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess it depends on the ghost, you know, yeah. but if it's like helpful ghost mode, mm-hmm. why use a defroster when you can have somebody? <laughs> i sure that, that breath would be icy, dude. Oh, that's true. That's true. We, okay. We need to workshop this mm-hmm. first prove ghosts exist. Yeah. Secondly, figure out how to commodify them and put them in an automobile coming to a dealer near you. On it. Thank you, Love Fast. For anybody who feels that this is kind of a downer, um, that this, or feels that this is itself the continuation of a cover up, there's one last thing I want to leave you with uh, that may be of interest. Remember earlier I mentioned that 2019 reopened investigation on part of the Russian government. They were not investigating all the proposed causes. They went for the three most likely ones. And so this means that they squarely, in advance, decided to ignore the idea of anything like um, an individual human or cryptid murderer, uh, unexplainable, unidentified flying objects, or, of course, secret Soviet tech. So if you are feeling very X-Files, you still want to believe there may be something else still buried beneath the avalanche of reporting on this story. We're going to pause for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be back with more strange news. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry, The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back uh, with more strange news. Uh, I, I guess this is it. This is our third segment. I guess I, I have the honor and the privilege of going last today. And it is kind of a momentous day in the history of, of technology. Maybe not day. Uh, it's week, perhaps. Um, but you guys are children of the Internet, like myself. We all grew up with dial-up modems and remember the first day that a cable modem was a thing and Spotify and all that. Uh, you know, and even before that, GeoCities and animated GIFs and all of the little things, the little beautiful treasures that the Internet has bestowed upon us over the years. And one of the things that we can all absolutely thank for many of those treasures uh, is uh, the Adobe company uh and adobe flash you guys remember flash oh yeah when the first band i was in had a website that was this amazing flash animation a friend of ours made of just the name of our band but like forming in flash yeah. mm -hmm. it was it was it was beautiful and mm -hmm. it's the first program i ever used to edit a video the first video i ever made was a like a terrible flash <laughs> thing where I just, I wasn't animating. I was just shooting video and then putting it into flash and trying to put together a thing. Some of my favorite nerd games are in flash totally. uh, or mm -hmm. were, mm -hmm. uh, that's, uh, it's a thing of the past. I tried to figure it out, but I went ahead and just played them all one last time. That's right. You got it, Ben. You nailed it because flash is dead. Uh, as of January 12th of this year, uh, flash, 
has has bit the dust. It is uh, it is absolutely um, no longer supported by Adobe in that it won't be patched anymore. Uh, there will be no more updates. And depending on who you ask, and and I'm not a, a super duper you know in the weeds computer. Uh, expert in this way. I have a, enough of a working understanding to understand the basics of things like coding and line commands, command lines and all that. But uh, apparently there is some kind of built-in thing in the latest version of Flash that deactivates it in some way. We'll get into what that could mean or does mean. But I just wanted to do just a little bit of a brief kind of history of Flash because a lot of this stuff it was kind of nostalgic and fun for me. Uh, Flash originally started in 1995 uh, when two friends uh, by the name of Jonathan Gay and Charlie Jackson met at a Macintosh users group and decided that kind of they kind of became pals uh, based on their mutual under, mutual appreciation of programming for Macs because that wasn't as much of a thing at the time. We hadn't seen the Mac renaissance that we, you know, that led to where we are now with things like the iPhone and Macs being the absolute gold standard for audio and computer editing and animation and all of that. So they were very much ahead of the curve and they essentially kind of put their heads together through their skills of being able to kind of program basic graphic editors and games and such and decided they wanted to make something that would use pen computers, uh, essentially early forms of tablets they use like a stylus so they started building something called smart sketch which is a graphics editor for mac for pen computers and then it eventually evolved into something called future splash uh, that was originally a component for smart sketch and then became kind of a thing unto itself and it was an animator and if you if you what you're talking about matt with the really rudimentary kind of flash uh editor that's sort of what this early version looked like it was essentially almost had the look of a word document with like a a big empty field at the bottom and then at the top you had a very rudimentary version of what you might see today in After Effects or in any kind of editor where you have multiple tracks or layers uh, that you can drag things into. It's incorporated things like tweening or in-betweening where you can like set a beginning point and end point for like a rudimentary kind of stick animation uh, and or 2D animation, then it would fill in the gaps. Um, so in 1986, where many of us probably came up Cross Flash originally was a company called Macromedia, uh, bought Flash in 96, uh, and then it became Macromedia Flash. It turned from Future Splash into Flash. Um, and that's kind of the, the big heyday of Flash was when it became, uh, basically, it was so popular because of early adoption from like Netscape, if you remember Netscape, or eventually it was called Mozilla, uh, because it could do like animation headers for websites that didn't require like real-time video playback and it was just like uh, much more versatile than an animated gif which was all just stored in one file and it was interactive you could add little buttons almost like a dvd menu things called action scripts and it became kind of the design platform du jour for the internet and it's really what we think of as the look of the internet from the mid to late 90s and even the early days of youtube entirely based around flash the earliest versions of youtube were designed in flash uh in fact chad hurley stephen chen and jawad kareem um were kind of toying with the idea of maybe doing a dating site or you know something else and they uh had a meeting with with an investor named Keith Rebois, 
forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that, it's R-A-B-O-I-S. Um, and he mentioned they were working on a streaming video site and he asked if they were designing in Flash. And when they said yes, he agreed to invest because it was so ubiquitous. Um, then the, you know, the tide for Flash kind of turned when the iPhone came out and Steve Jobs basically unequivocally counted it out of any iPhone releases. He found it to be uh, buggy. He found it to be unstable. He found it to have uh, security flaws. So it was not um, part of the iPhone at all. And that really kind of spelled the beginning of the end for Flash. Um, so RIP Flash. But my real story for today, I guess, is what like, what about, surely there are some, you know, uh, websites or God forbid, larger institutions that are still relying on Flash and didn't get the memo that it was uh, going to, you know, go the way of the dodo. Um, and, and that actually turns out to be the case for a, a small region in China. And this wasn't like, you know, news to anybody. You know, Adobe announced that they were uh, sunsetting Flash back in 2017. Um, they would be de deactivating the, the plugin and its extensions by the end of 2020. So they actually gave a little bit of a grace, you know, a couple of weeks into 2021. Um, but earlier this month, when it happened, a uh, according to Apple Daily, uh, officials at the China Railway, Shenyang, had been using Flash-based software to plan many aspects of their daily train routes and shipping. Um, and as a result of, of the, uh, the sunsetting of the software, it caused about 20 hours of absolute chaos. Um, apparently, they weren't able to dispatch trains, uh, and it led to the railroad shutting down completely in Dayan, Lianning province. Um, and apparently, they were able to roll back the software to an earlier version of Flash Player that didn't have this uh, deactivating code. Um, but again, I've seen some some chatter on the internet saying maybe that's not entirely the case. The idea of the self-deactivating code, that does seem a little kind of weird why they would do that, uh, but it still feels like if it wasn't being supported or if there was like a, some kind of it needed an update, I'm not exactly sure. Um, what, what do you guys think about this? Does this have the ring of truth or does this seem like uh, maybe somebody missed something along the way? When you're talking about Flash itself being like deactivating, deactivating itself, itself, the idea of why would they do that? Why would they build a self-deactivating clock into a piece of software? I would think it would be more just them not wanting to, not supporting it anymore, not patching it, not updating it. Well, it's a way to protect end users because it really is Flash Player really is a, a massive vulnerability for attacks, and it, it has been for a long time. And mm -hmm. if it's no longer updated and just supported and they left it dead on machines of millions and millions of people across the world, then anyone who wanted to could just find a machine that still had it installed and get in through various ways mm -hmm. to a machine. So I think I think it's a smart move on Adobe's part to make sure it's self-destructing. Um, actually, you know what? I, I need to triple check and make sure I actually... <laughs> took it off of this machine. <laughs> now right. that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, Flash had, Flash had problems. Um, the the exploits that you mentioned, Matt, are common. You know what I mean? And they're not. They weren't necessarily high level 
hacker black hat stuff. You could have script kiddies just cut and paste their way uh, into into some pretty serious stuff using Flash. Uh, the thing is, part of the problem is not not just that it was insecure, but that it was powering a large portion of the internet. Uh, or of you know a lot of ways people encountered the internet, and this this was a heavy heavy ways the head that wears the crown situation for Adobe because because they made it. So how many messages were they getting for years on a daily basis saying what the hell is going on with Flash? I bet they had some snarky titles too, like News Flash, your plugin sucks, or all kinds of other weird, mean messages. Uh, and the more popular it got, it's kind of like the reason that the Honda Civic is often listed as the uh, most frequently stolen car in the United States. It's not necessarily because it's the most amazing car in the United States. It's because it's super common. Mm -hmm. And because Flash was super common, hackers were able to get more bang for their buck if they built exploits that worked with this. If no, if like... If uh, uh, fewer people used Flash, then hackers would not have paid near as much attention to it. Just, just going to say the Civic is a lot easier to, to boost than I don't know a Maserati. Well, you sell for the parts. Never sell the whole car if you want to make money. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, there was a little addendum on this. This story originated on a website called Apple Daily, and then there were other websites that kind of reposted it and added some addendums. But uh, one that I got. Uh, Recently, ARS Technica it just posted an, an update, and it said uh, a reader found a blog post questioning whether the flash problem affected train dispatching. It also says that the railroad reverted to an old version of Adobe Flash, but not a pirated version. Um, that was actually the pirated version was in the uh, original Apple Daily article. But then as a non-Chinese speaker, it's hard for me to be sure if the Apple Daily article is accurate. Um, but then this is the interesting part. The latest flash client in China can still be downloaded from Flash.cn as per Adobe's end-of-life Flash support page. It has no time bomb and will keep receiving... So the time bomb is real. Uh, security patches for a while. Uh, but here's the most interesting part. There is a company called Harman, which is a subsidiary of Samsung, that Adobe offloaded all of its uh, Flash-related activities to. And apparently that you know, support still exists for legacy Flash-based software that should continue well past the cutoff date. So it sounds to me like the administrators of this system in China uh, might have been more to blame than the software itself. And if you are still running Flash at this point, please remember to uninstall Un uninstall whatever you're doing there. Because in Adobe's own words, uh, they strongly recommend, like a month ago, they were strongly recommending all users immediately uninstall Flash. Because like you were saying, Matt, it, it's been kind of notoriously uh, an entry point for, you know, folks wanting to do harm to systems, right? Yeah, yeah, that's... That's why the update is always so important. The same thing with Apple OS, just recently strongly recommended everybody update. Um, same thing with the last uh, Mac OS that went through. It's just mm -hmm. like every time a new exploit gets identified, you got to update. And doesn't mean they go away. Doesn't mean all of them go away or there's never going to be another one. It just means the ones that are that we're aware of need to get fixed. It's a beautiful dance 
of, uh, of, of trying to outsmart uh, outsmart one another. And the the disadvantage for the non-hacker side of the equation is that uh, it's often reactionary, right? That's why you have white hat hackers who find exploits and notify software creators. But remember, if you decide to keep Flash because you have you have a soft spot for one thing or another that's Flash related, remember it's not it's not just a matter of whether you feel like you'll be okay now. You might be saying, I don't have a railroad direct. Well I Good, and also, you know, I'm sorry, I, I know owning a railroad's a dream for a lot of people, but you have to remember that even if you keep something around, Adobe is never going to update this again. It's just going to get older and older and increasingly archaic, uh, which means the liability window you have there is just going to enlarge over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, some folks that I like uh, a YouTube channel of, it's called uh, Internet Today, um, made a really interesting point that uh, it's something that, you know, we've probably all been in a situation where we're wondering this. When you go to the airport and they're entering things one finger at a time on these terminal computers, you know, that are clearly running some super old proprietary OS, you know, or think about like the types of operating systems that run, say, you know, nuclear power plants. They want those to be as stable and uncomplicated as possible uh, so that they're dependable. Constantly. And they don't constantly have to update them. And and these systems are not usually on the wider web, you know, a lot of the time or they're on some sort of intranet, uh, you know, for the actual company. But it's not like they're connected or have to you know interface with all these other like HTML5 or or whatever. So whenever you're at the airport and, and you're wondering why it seems like such an antiquated system, it's probably because it is. But it's also probably for your benefit. Mm-hmm. And also, by the way, uh, don't forget, there was a massive U.S. government hack. There, there have been like state level hacks working off Flash. Um, to to your point about separating things from the wider internet, we're talking about two terms there. There's firewalling, and then there's air gapping. Air gapping means there is a physical obstacle keeping something from ever being connected to the web. That's why Stuxnet. If anybody recalls that, was so impressive. It had to be physically carried uh, to the machines of the Iranian government. Uh, But you're right. You're right. Uh, People want reliable. They don't want, well, I guess we can't say flashy in this segment, but they don't want, um, you know, really showy, impressive bells and whistly stuff. They're completely okay with the black and green text terminal screen, as long as they know it will always... It will always work. And shout out to the people, by the way, on the development and maintenance side who have to keep those dinosaurs breathing. I can't imagine. You know what I mean? Like every large company or many large companies have stuff like this, especially oddly enough, infrastructure related things, airlines, air traffic control. I mean, anybody who's been into um, the, the tech side of a lot of very powerful government agencies will tell you war stories about legacy software. I bet we have people who are listening today who have some stories of their own. I'd, I'd love to hear them. What's the oldest, weirdest thing you've seen? Yeah, if totally. you can tell us. <laughs> yeah, and, and shout out to Adobe in particular, because you're only hearing this because I'm rolling right now in their product called Audition. I think that might be the same for you guys too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> don't feel bad for them. This, they're they're going to be okay, folks. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you can also thank Premiere for a lot of the videos that came out on Stuff They Don't Want You To Know that are still out there on Stuff They Don't Want You To Know on the YouTube channel. And you can find that at youtube.com slash conspiracy stuff. No longer coded in flash like back in the day, but uh, it much, much zippier. And you can see our heads in boxes for every piece of content that we put out. Uh, and uh, let us know what you think. Segway. Yes. Uh, let us know. Let us know. Uh, yo, that sounds like let it snow. So let us know uh, your opinion about the new proposed explanation for Dyatlov Pass. Do you feel vindicated? Do you feel disappointed? Do you feel there's more to the story? Also, uh, incredibly important here, if you are a resident of Myanmar or you have spent time there, you have connections, let us know. We would like, we always like to hear primary sources on the ground. I do want to thank the people who have already uh, reached out with some, with some questions and some accounts. Uh, this, this is an area of the world that is unfamiliar to a lot of the West, and we hope that you explore it with us in a future episode. Also, if you own a railroad, what's that like? Let us know. Not counting railroad tycoon or whatever that simulator <laughs> is, but I hear good things. Uh, we try to be easy to find on the internet, folks. Uh, unlike Adobe Flash, you can you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. We love to recommend our Facebook community page. Here's where it gets crazy, where we have officially welcomed a brand new moderator, Say hello to Jennifer when you get a chance. But I'm not going to, you might be saying. <laughs> you guys know I hate social media. It's not, it's not my thing. It doesn't wreck my trains. If that's the case, well, we've thought ahead on this, and you are in luck because we also have a phone number. That's right. You can reach us at one eight three three stwitk That's S-T-D-W-I-T-K. I feel like I stuttered that one a little bit the first time around. Leave us a message at the sound of Ben's dulcet tones. Three minutes is the time limit that you will have. That is your three minutes. Do us a solid and try to stick to one of those three-minute blocks. You'll be much more likely to hear yourself on one of our weekly listener mail episodes. And please let us know what to call you, uh, or if this is absolutely off limits to use your voice on the listener mail episode, in which case we may still be able to recount your tale uh, without using your audio, but we prefer to be able to play the audio. I think that adds a nice dimension to it. That's right. And if you don't want to do any of those things, the best way to reach us is kind of old-fashioned, but we love it. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. 
With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.